Our scripture reading this morning is Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 13. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ." This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. A few years ago, I was playing a game of basketball, a pickup game, and my friend Jared was picking teams. And as he was picking teams, he looked at me and he said, Ben, and he chose me first to be on his team. And I was as surprised as you are right now. And, uh, and I was thinking to myself, does he see that there's other people out on the court? And, and I said to Jared, I was like, man, are you sure you meant to pick me first? And he said, Ben, he looked at me and said, Ben, you can't teach hustle. Now here's some context, all right? Uh, when I was in ninth grade, I was obsessed with basketball, obsessed. I was also five foot three. And so there was never really a chance that I was going to be making even the freshman squad, let alone making a career out of this. But I, but I love the sport. And so I found out, I realized that the, the greatest contribution I was ever going to make was to be the one that outworked, out-hustled, and out-rebounded everybody else. And, and so I became a hustler. And Jared saw this. He saw this long-honed skill of mine, and he thought it would be an asset to his team. And I'm pretty sure we lost that game. But I think some of us have a temptation to think that this is how God does things. That, that God basically looks around for people that would be valuable to have on his team. That because maybe they're naturally gifted or incessant hustlers, they've got this work ethic. But as we see in our text this morning, in verse 7, it says, Grace was given to each one of you, each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. This is so freeing because what it means is God doesn't need you to be on his team, but maybe he wants you to be on his team. What this means is that he doesn't need your incessant work ethic. It means he doesn't need your boss-level admin skills. It, doesn't mean, it means that he doesn't need any dynamic preachers. It's because what this means is that Jesus is, is in a way, choosing a squad and as he's doing it, kind of looks past the six foot eight guy and he, he looks at the bumbling, goofy guy with his shorts on backwards. May or may not be a true story. And, and he chooses that guy because Jesus has this way of choosing the people that we would overlook so that he can bring them on his team, give them grace and gifts, and let them serve for his glory. Because then the giver gets the glory. The giver gets the glory. And so when we look at the book of Ephesians, we've seen so far in the first three chapters that Paul is a man, the, the author of Ephesians, is a man that's intoxicated by grace. He can hardly get through a sentence, let alone a chapter, without talking about the grace of God, this, this overflowing of God's abundance towards sinners in Christ. 
And after he finishes the first three chapters of Ephesians about God's saving grace, he moves to our text today, which is about God's serving grace. The grace he gives to each one of us for the sake of others. And so last week we saw that there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. But this week we'll see that there's also a diversity of people, of experiences, of temperaments, of personalities, of gifts that make up that one body. Far from uniformity, the grace of Jesus brings a colorful, lively diversity. And so if I'm going to summarize this text that we're going to look at today in one sentence, this is it. Jesus gives a diversity of gifts for building up his one body for the extension of his kingly power throughout the world. And we're going to see that in in three questions, really. The first question is, who is the gift? The second one is, who are the gifted? And the third one is, who is the giver? So who is the gift? Who are the gifted? And who is the giver? Now, if you've got your Bible, uh, you're going to need it. So if you would open up to Ephesians chapter 4. If not, if you have your worship guide, go ahead and get that out in front of you. Now, I recognize when I ask who is the gift, it's kind of a weird question. But look at the contrast between verses 7 and 8. Verse 7 reads this. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift, singular. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts, plural, to men. So I want to submit that the gift, the singular gift that that Christ gives in verse 7 is the Holy Spirit. So the gift is the Holy Spirit. And we'll get to what the gifts are a little bit later in the sermon. But listen to how the Apostle Peter, in his great sermon on Pentecost, the day when the Holy Spirit came down on the church, listen to how he puts it. At the end of his sermon, he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. For the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Or listen to how Jesus says it in Luke 11. He says this What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Finally, we'll go back to the Apostle Paul. Elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And so as we look at this, what we see is that the Holy Spirit is the one singular gift of Christ. Which is why Jonathan Edwards, the the great 18th century theologian and preacher, this is what he says. The sum of all that Christ purchased is the Holy Spirit. The sum of all that Christ purchased is the Holy Spirit. It's the gift. The Holy Spirit is the, the gift. Jesus, by grace, gives the Holy Spirit to all who are his. And then the Spirit comes in and grows those gifts in us. I think this is important because when we talk about spiritual gifts, we have to be sure that we're talking about capital S spiritual gifts because it's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who gives these gifts. But I think we have this tendency. 
uh, this tendency to make the spiritual gifts too, too spiritual. Or I guess maybe the word would be too supernatural. And I think it's important because the Spirit doesn't typically just out of nowhere, out of nothing, originate some random gifts that weren't there before. That's not the typical way he goes about doing this. Rather, the Spirit typically awakens and redirects latent potential that's already there in us. This is the Spirit's role in creation. He's been doing this for a long time. And that is he, he comes into creation and he renews and restores what was lost because of the sin of Adam and Eve in their rebellion. And so the Spirit's work in us, as Jesus gives us the gift of the Spirit, is he comes into our lives and he renews your created nature. He restores you to what you were meant to be. That's the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so this ongoing death and resurrection that occurs with our temperaments and our personalities and our gifts is all for the purpose of bringing about this new expression, this renewed person that you were originally intended to be. And so the Spirit doesn't make you an unrecognizable person, but a renewed person. Not an unrecognizable person, but a sanctified person. And so I'm going to actually give you three examples of this. The first one is personal. Uh, the second one is biblical. And the third one is historical. Okay, so personally, this has been my experience in at least, three, in at least two ways. The way that the, the Holy Spirit comes in and renews what's already there. Now, if you knew me in high school, you would know that I actually didn't read one book in all of high school. And the irony of that is that my first job out of college was teaching intensive reading at a high school. Uh, and, and so what happened, but, it, but if you were to ask my family and friends who knew me during that time, they would tell you that I was still a, a voracious learner and an exceptionally curious person. And so when I was 19 and the Spirit came in and made me alive— that love of learning was, was focused and honed in on my newfound faith in Jesus. He renews what was latent there. Second, I, I've always been fairly hyper-conscious of what people are thinking and feeling around me. Typically, what they're thinking and feeling about me. And if you know this game, you know it's an exhausting one to play. And, I, and I've noticed in recent years that the Spirit has been renewing this characteristic in me, and he's been reusing it to make me more of a, an attentive friend and counselor. Because I'm able to kind of discern what's actually going on inside. And so this is an example, personally, of how God renews our nature, bringing to life our gifts into the service of Jesus. Now let's look at a biblical example. Do you all remember the story in Luke 7 where Jesus is at Simon the Pharisee's house and, and Jesus is having dinner with Simon the Pharisee and this woman just comes in and totally interrupts things. And she begins by weeping and begins washing Jesus' feet with her hair. You remember this story? And all, of, all that we know about her is what the text says and that says that she was a woman of the city who was a sinner which we can infer probably meant she was a prostitute. And so in her profession, her beauty, her hair, her perfume, her sensuality were her most prized gifts. But when she comes to Jesus, he restores her from using those gifts to serve sin to using those gifts to serve him. And so as, as she comes in and she weeps on him and touches him and wipes his feet with her hair and she pours expensive perfume out all over his feet, it's probably pretty uncomfortable for everybody except Jesus. 
Because Jesus knew this is what salvation looks like. Jesus knew that what had happened was that the Holy Spirit was redirecting her gifts towards worship of him. Now, third and finally, this is a more of a historical story. I want to talk about the Spirit's work in Chuck Colson. Now, some of you may know who Chuck Colson was. He was a, a successful politician and a senior presidential aide to Richard Nixon. And so he had this key role in Nixon's politics, and he was known, he had this reputation for being fairly conniving and deceptive. And so when the Watergate scandal broke, Chuck Colson was implicated in all of it. And shortly before pleading guilty to obstruction of justice and giving his life into the hands of the judge, he read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis and gave his life into the hands of Jesus. And so when Colson went to prison, he served seven months in prison as a new Christian. And when he got out, he said this, I found myself increasingly drawn to the idea that God had put me in prison for a purpose and that I should do something for those I had left behind. Now, if you know his story, you know that he went on to found Prison Fellowship, which has become the largest Christian nonprofit in the world that serves prisoners and works towards uh, criminal justice reform. And it's because the grace of Jesus came in that Chuck Colson ended up in prison, out of prison, and then back in prison again. And this was because the Spirit was renewing his incredible visionary and leadership abilities that were clearly there when he was in politics. And so we see that this is kind of the Spirit's MO, the way that he works as he comes in and he renews what was latent in us already. And so how is the Spirit renewing you? Your passions and desires, your gifts and abilities, how is he working to bring these spiritual gifts out in you? I have a friend who, uh, who jokingly says that he has the gift of quoting the office. It's a spiritual gift, he says. Um, and some of us here might think that we have the spiritual gift of always being right, and it's a great one to have, except for, for your friends and family. And, and really, in the New Testament, we have five different lists that give 20 different distinct gifts, and these lists aren't even exhaustive. Because what, what the reality is, is that there's this diversity of people and this diversity of temperaments and personalities and backgrounds and experiences, and therefore an a diversity of gifts in this one body of Jesus. Listen to how the Apostle Paul says it in Romans 12, 4 through 8. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in her exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Teaching, contribution, leadership, mercy, the body of Christ has a diversity of gifts that are all essential to its health and growth. But even as we are being renewed, we need help. Because what we need is we need God-appointed guides that come alongside and encourage and equip all of God's people to discover, develop, and deploy their gifts so that we might see our communities flourish. How does this happen? 
Well, let's look at the second question. The second question is, who are the gifted? Who are the gifted? Now, in one sense, it's all of us, right? We've already seen in verse 7, it says, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Each one of us who have received the grace of Jesus has been given the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is renewing us and our gifts. But when I ask who are the gifted, I kind of mean it in two different ways. The first way is I mean it in the sense of who are the gifted? They are the ones who are given the gift of the Holy Spirit, all who are in Christ. But in the second way, I mean who are the gifted? I mean the ones who are given as gifts or gifted to the church. And so when I ask who are the gifted, in another sense, I'm talking about the people listed here in verse 11. Jesus gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Jesus gives gifts to every saint through the Holy Spirit, but he has given apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to train those saints to use their gifts. And so hear this, they are not to monopolize the ministry from everyone else, but to multiply the ministry for everyone else. That's the role of these these people who are gifted to the church. And so how do they do this? Well, something that's that's significant here is that all five of these gifted people have, have one thing in common, at least, and that is that they're all ministers of God's word. They're all ministers of God's word. Apostles reveal and plant the word of God. Prophets expose and exhort with the word of God. Evangelists announce and gather with the word of God. Shepherds care and feed with the word of God. Teachers unpack and apply the word of God. And so you see that what they all have in common is that they are gifts given to the church that that know how to rightly use the word of God. Now, we don't have time to go deeper into this, but in Ephesians 2.20, if you remember, Paul said that the foundation of the church is the apostles and the prophets. And I think what he meant by that, that they were essential in revealing and proclaiming, announcing the word of God, proclaiming it and publishing it in the scriptures. And so I think the ongoing role of apostles and prophets is through through this book, through the scriptures, which leads today means that we have evangelists and shepherds and teachers who do the ordinary day-in and day-out business of equipping the saints. And this makes sense. We really need all three of these gifted people to serve humbly. Because we need teachers to point us upward with the word of God. We need shepherds to counsel us inward with the word of God. We need evangelists to send us outward with the word of God. We need these equippers to come and help us to use our gifts in accordance with God's word. This is how Jesus builds his church, by the spirit of God, through the people of God, so that they can live out the word of God. Now, it would be possible to read verse 7 and to see grace was given to each one of us and think, I'm gifted. What do I need y'all for? Right? It'd be an easy thing for us to do that. I'm gifted. I don't need so-and-so. I don't need you. I, don't, I, I can do this on my own. Grace was given to me. But but do you see here that God is making it so that the flourishing and functioning of our gifts is interdependent on one another? It's God's design. There's a philosopher named Edith Stein who who was actually killed in Auschwitz, and, and she was one of the first philosophers to think that it was philosophically interesting that we are unable to see the backs of our own heads. 
And I think what she was getting at was she was talking about how we are so interdependent on one another that we need the perspectives of each other to even see what we look like. And so how much more interdependent are we for actually living out the God-given gifts that we have? We need each other. God made it that way. There is no award for best solo performance in the Christian life. God has designed this whole thing to be interdependent on one another. As one commentator says, in his wisdom and to make each dependent on others, God has ordained not uniformity, but an endless variety of gifts for members of the body. And so why are these people given to the church? Let's look again at verses 11 and 12. And Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Now, if you've been around New City for a little while, you know that I'm kind of late to the party preaching on this text. Uh, Because for a very long time, this has been core to our philosophy of ministry. This is how we do things around here. We see the pastors and staff of New City primarily as equippers, And we see the church, the saints, primarily as those who are equipped to do the work of ministry. Now, Damien shared this quote uh, other times, but it's worth repeating because of how much it's shaped the way that we view ministry. And it was by Mark Green at a global conference on the mission of the church. And this is what he said. There are two strategies to reach the world. The first one is to recruit the people of God to use some of their leisure time to join the missionary initiatives of church-paid workers. It's the first strategy. And the second one is to equip the people of God for fruitful mission in all of their life. The new city is decidedly committed to not being the first type of church. What John Stott calls the traditional model of church. This is what he says. The traditional model is that of the pyramid with the pastor perched precariously on its pinnacle, like a little pope in his own church, while the people are arrayed beneath him in seated ranks of inferiority. (laughs) I wonder what he thinks about this. He's talking about the traditional model of the church being this, this level of clergy and laity, this level of superior and inferior. And we've, we've said decidedly, absolutely not. That's not going to be the way that works around here. And so we constantly envision and pray and dream and strategize how we can be the kind of church that equips the people of God for fruitful mission in all of life. That's why... Uh, Our mission statement is to make whole life disciples for their callings because we believe that you are the one who God has gifted and called to minister where you live, where you work, where you learn, where you play. That none of the rest of us can do quite what God has called and gifted you to do. So you're hearing how this is actually close to the beating heart of New City. This is who we are as a church is what Paul is talking about here in Ephesians chapter 4. And so we really do believe that the body of Christ is only healthy when, when the diversity of its people work together in this united mission. And if you look at verse 13, verse 13 basically is about how this gifted variety with a graced unity will press on until we all attain. Now, That word attain is actually used nine times in the book of Acts, and it's about a person arriving at a destination. 
And so what verse 13 is about, it's about the destination towards which the church is traveling. So verse 13 says this, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, when I hear what Paul's talking about, I can't help but get this picture of uh, those caricature drawings that you see street vendors sell sometimes. You know what I'm talking about? The ones where, where the person's head is huge and the body's really tiny and they usually overly accentuate things like Obama usually has really big ears and Jay Leno's got a huge chin and different things like that. Some of y'all are like, Jay Leno? <laughs> Have you not seen The Tonight Show lately? <laughs> and, and, and you know these caricature drawings that they sell in different places. And I, I think what Paul's talking about here is he's talking about this is what the church is like. The church is, the body of Christ is kind of small and underdeveloped. In a way, we are currently, actually in many ways, we're currently kind of a caricature of Christ to the world. This is why we hear so often, I, I like Jesus, but not the church. The, the, the quote that Gandhi famously said was, I like your Christ, but not your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Now, I honestly don't know if Gandhi knew what he was talking about on that, but what I hear is that the world is longing for the church to grow up, for the church to be the church who God in Christ has called us to be, or to use Paul's words, the body is to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, so that the fullness of him fills all in all. The goal of all of this is the fullness of Christ. The supreme purpose of the church is to mature and extend Jesus' kingly rule, kingly power throughout the world so that everything is pervaded with his presence. That's why we need to grow up. That's why we need to equip the saints to do the work of ministry, to build one another up, to grow up into this head who is Christ. Which brings us to our close this morning, where I want to see who is the giver. Who is the giver? Look at verse 8 with me. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Verses 8 through 10 show how Jesus is in the position to give grace and gifts and to extend his presence throughout the whole world. In verse 8, Paul quotes Psalm 68 to expound Jesus' victory march. But he realizes he has to do a little bit of explanation for us. And so verses 9 and 10 are, are Paul's explanation of this passage from Psalm 68. Which I just think to pause for a second and say, Paul is fundamentally a Bible nerd. He can't help himself. He just has to teach the Bible to the people that he cares about because he thinks it matters. So Paul does this little excursus where he's just talking about the Bible for a minute here. And he's using it to explain Jesus' victory march. So he quotes Psalm 68 and explains it in light of Jesus' two movements. He talks about how in Jesus, God descended to the earth, took on human nature, skin and bones and everything, and became a man. How while he was on earth, he descended further in that he was homeless and mistreated and rejected and betrayed and falsely accused and unjustly condemned to death. But he descended even further into the depths of death, even death on a cross. 
until finally he descended into the tomb. But the second movement, Jesus' ascent, began at his resurrection from the grave. He was revived to life by the Spirit of God. Then he ascended up far above all heavens and sits at the right hand of God the Father. And he's enthroned there as the triumphant king of the universe. In the meantime, he pours out his grace on his people as we wait eagerly for him to return as the true king. So these two movements of Christ, this, ascend, these, this descending and ascending, are called the humiliation and exaltation of Jesus Christ. This is the core of Christianity. It's why Paul doesn't get very far from it. He's talking about spiritual gifts, but he can't help but go back to these two movements of Jesus in his humiliation and in his exaltation. And so when Jesus conquered death and sin, he was given the gift of the living and Holy Spirit. And Acts 2 verse 33 says this, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, Jesus has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. The Father poured out the Holy Spirit on Jesus at his ascension and then Jesus poured out that Spirit on his people. So in other words, what this text is saying is that Jesus is the ultimate re-gifter. He couldn't give what he hadn't first received, and yet, as we saw earlier, the Holy Spirit is the most precious thing that Jesus could possibly give to us. Another way of looking at this is what we saw in our call to worship this morning. If you remember, our our call to worship was from Psalm 133, and it said this, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Like Aaron, the first high priest of Israel, Jesus, the great high priest of Israel, the great high priest of his church, ascended and he was anointed with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit runs down Jesus' head onto his body, the church. And so as Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit as like oil, it it flowed down from Jesus the head onto his body, the church. And, And now we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, enabling us to live in unity and enabling us to move out in love until Christ fills the world and becomes all in all. And so as we close, I want to ask just really practically, how do we practice this? How do we practice this? I've got a few very quick suggestions. First, you must see yourself as an instrument in the Redeemer's hands. You must see that God has called you and gifted you and is equipping you to be used for the good of your sisters and brothers, for the good of your neighbors and enemies. Second, it would be worth connecting to a community group. It would be worth it to get in there, to show up, to practice building one another up in love and to join each other on mission together. Third, it would, be, it would be worth your time to discern your gifts in community. Be willing to ask others, hey, what gifts do you see in me? Hey, what latent potential do you think the Holy Spirit's working in me? And then also be willing to speak to what gifts you see in others. This is the way God designed for us to discern, discover, to deploy our gifts. Fourth, engage in Christian education and equipping. I mean, it's in the name. This is what this is about. It's to equip you for mission in all of life. Engage it. Fifth and finally, 
In the words of the Apostle Peter, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And so let us use our gifts for the building up of new city, this expression of the body of Christ, so that we might see our triumphant king become all in all. With that, let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have given us the good gift of your spirit. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be delighted to accompany your word with power this morning. I pray that you would continue to renew us and gift us and equip us for this mission. Jesus, we want to follow you, our King and our Lord. So I pray this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen.